0: Welcome to episode 9 of the Giver's Time podcast, the podcast that highlights the extraordinary members of our armed forces and their families. Today's guest is an army veteran who served in the Parachute Regiment. During his time, he was deployed in Afghanistan, and during his second tour, he sustained a serious injury resulting in the loss of his left arm. This injury did not stop him, though. After leaving the army, he has gone on to do some truly staggering things, and has become a true adventurer. He's trekked unsupported to the North Pole, He's climbed Everest, only being stopped from the summit by awful weather. And he's been a member of the GB paracycling team. And these are only a few things that he's done. So we are pleased to welcome Jacko Van Gas. Jacko, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hey guys, how are you? Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure.
0: And of course, joining me today is our ambassador, Scotty Darrick.
2: Hi. And yeah, it's good to see Jackals Mog again. Obviously, we were in the Invictus Games 2016. <laughs> So it was um Jacko did all the recycling and lycra stuff. <laughs> I did all the heavy lifting and throwing things. Oh. Yeah, it was all about Jacko, you know he's looking good tanned
0: You don't sound <laughs> you don't sound too bitter Scotty. You only sound no, a little bit no, bitter. It's no, at all. Not at all. I did all the hard stuff. Uh, all right. Um so Jacko, you were born in South Africa. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What that was like growing up in?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. So obviously originally South African born. Um you know i i do look back and i i i'm very fortunate uh in in that sense because i I can't really complain about my upbringing i had a very great upbringing you know very loving parents Um, uh, we had a my grandparents had a family farm so i spent most of my time obviously in town in city and going to school there and most weekends or, or majority of holidays i would be with my grandparents on the farm so very outdoorsy you know running around shooting air rifles herding cattle learning to drive from the age of 10 you know um and you know just just that typical outdoor life so um you know really nothing to complain about in that sense um and and yeah i loved every second of it we we then kind of moved on from yeah gosh where do we go like i say it's just um it was, a, it was a wonderful lifestyle, and in the sun. My first passion was rugby. I've always played rugby to, you know, Classic. what I thought was a, you know, a very high standard. You know, it's a big thing in South Africa to play for, you know, your 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 school, whether it's your primary school, whether it's your the high school you go to or the college, uh, you know, to play for their first team. And uh, I actually suffered a really really bad knee injury. Um, during a, a rugby match where a guy tackled me from the side and I I actually broke my knee um, extremely badly, having then to get plates and screws into the knee to keep it. A, and that took me out for quite a, a, a significant amount of time, actually. Um, I actually missed a full season, you know, the, the next season. This was midway of one season. Mm. Um, I wow. was, uh, gosh, I think I was about... Fifteen or sixteen at this stage, yeah. um, and that's really where I've always had a I've always had a passion for cycling to some degree. But this is where the bike really came in because mm. I found it as a great form of uh, escapism and also as a, uh, another tool of rehabilitation. Um, and whilst all my mates were constantly going away every weekend playing, you know, some of the most prestigious high schools in the country. I was stuck at home and I, I had to find a way to keep myself busy, yeah. but I obviously longing to get back to uh, a rugby field. I I worked towards that and eventually I did. You know, I played for my school's first team. You know, the great honors that brings with it, and we did really well and. Finishing on top of the league and, and winning trophies and stuff, so that was always you know a, a good thing for me. I then uh, after school you know left school. I didn't go down the, the the university route. We had a very small family business, and I started working for my dad. And my dad's very traditional, you know, gave me all the all the crappy jobs you know there is. You know, you're starting at the bottom, you work your way up. My dad was. What did a your our, what did your yeah. what did your father do, Jacko? Well, like I said, my dad was a bit of an entrepreneur and we had a number of small businesses. You know, one of them was actually this dist- distribution of leaflets. You know, we had a contract. So, so, so let's say like Tesco has a, a Easter special mm. uh, and then we had a, a workforce underneath us that will walk the streets and put it in your post box, yeah. um, you know, and stuff like that, you know, from that to newspapers and yes. all that kind of stuff. We sold fire lighters and wood and briquettes you know especially uh, saratka big braai you know barbecue community we did that we had a few other smaller contracts as well so a number of little things within one company so just learning all my dad's trades and all these contacts and stuff like that and i really enjoyed it but there was always something underlined for me i was always burning for something more and i and i think i craved independence Mm. um and i and i realized that basically If I wanted my own flat and I wanted to live on my own and and start being this independent individual, it's going to take a long time. Because at this Mm. time, you know, with again, my dad, you know, the small salary I received, you know, he made me paint. We had a warehouse. So I literally day one, (laughs) week one, he handed me a paintbrush and I'm like, what's this he's like well this place needs to you need to paint this is your job and you know for the first month I was painting this horrific warehouse and (laughs) he always found something to do on you know on the smaller scale side and then you know kind of grew you know work myself uh, up within the business but my point was that I created this independence and I realized that actually it's going to be years staying with my parents until I get there and I I don't know why uh, I didn't like that idea. So um, I started looking into other ways and forms um, and then having always had a passion for the, the army, I heard that because we're part of the Commonwealth, I can actually um, join uh, the British military. And, and that's how I then started looking into those routes and basically led right to, you know, to my life in the UK.
0: How old were you then when you went and and landed in the UK and joined and, and well, because and, you joined the Paris? But how old were you when? Because that must have been a, a massive culture shock going from lovely sunny South Africa to rainy, damp. I think sure, it was it? Like... So it was.
1: Uh, I was age twenty to answer your question. So I was age twenty, yeah. um, and I was very lucky in a sense because I came in. in I when I first made the move so so bags packed on the plane I landed um in June in 2000 and gosh it must have been 2006 if I remember correctly six or seven and um I was very fortunate as well that my sister at this stage was already established in London she's a couple of years older than me she's lived in London for a a few years as well so there was that friendly face on the other side of a uh, uh, of of the border gates, so, which was amazing, um, and she was a great help as well, helping me settle in. But yes, the first initial kind of uh, tests and bar <laughs> tests and all that kind of stuff was all <laughs> in Aldershot, <the> so <laughs> so I had to get a train there, get all the initial tests done, make sure I run, you know, the time within. It's funny enough, my my fiance Catherine has actually just looked it up. We I don't know why we had this discussion the other day, uh, and it was again. Uh, about what what it takes to get into the army or some of the other uh, yeah. services, and and what you have to run a two miler in and push ups and stuff like that, and then you go on to what the parachute regiment require, requirements are, and the run's a great deal faster. You know, you've got quite a little, quite a bit less time to actually compete it in. Um, so so I think she's actually set herself a goal to try and see if she can potentially oh, make nuts. the time cut <laughs> in this year. Sometimes, so so yeah. But my point was that, yes, you know, it was already on a slightly different, higher scale. Um, but it was it's, it's actually quite a little romantic story because myself and one of my best friends decided to come over to the UK and join the army. We knew literally oh, we wow. got on the plane. We got on the plane knowing we're joining the army which part of the army we had absolutely no idea we (laughs) you know i I didn't even even knew about the parachute regiment you know honestly um and we landed we landed a saturday sometime in june we landed the saturday and the monday morning i was in trafalgar square at the careers office (laughs) um, and myself and ian my best friend and we sat there and there was this rifles officer we walked in sort of to you know, fresh-blooded South Africans come in. And, um, you know, the strongest accents you can ever, you know, I was barely speaking English at that stage. <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah, so he explained everything to us, how it works, and obviously trying to recruit us for the rifles. And literally minutes before we walked out of the door, um, a parachute regiment officer came down the stairs. Um, and he couldn't
2: all... speak either. And he couldn't speak much <laughs> either as well. <laughs>
1: oh, so, I've got a place for you, son. was exactly and there was that immediate connection between (laughs) he sounds a bit daft but in any way he just said oh you know two south african boys what do you want to join we're like well we don't really know and he just said listen most of you guys are and it was true you know you're fit you're strong we again we come from a background where we will we've handled weapons you know Mm -hmm. again it's not it's as a kid, yeah. we used to shoot air rifles on the farm all the time and handguns and blah blah blah. It's like usually you're good marksmanship principles and all that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of your boys, i.e. South Africans, they joined the parachute regiment. So, just and he literally just gave me a leaflet. Didn't try to sell it at all. He's just like, just go and have a look at this. So we walked out. You know, when we got home on Google and, you know, read all about the parish regiment. And I said to my mate, this is the one I want to join. I don't know what you want to join, but I know this is the one because it just stood out. <laughs> and, and like I say, as, you know, the rest is history. It went back and said, this is what I want to do. They then obviously gave me all the guidelines of how to get in. Um, and I trained towards that. And yeah, eventually made it to, to well, we then move up to, to Gatwick Garrison um, up, up in the north.
0: uh, Ah. i want to yeah i want to know now how hard was it i'm imagining it's incredibly hard i'm imagining it pushed you quite far yeah so so to be very honest that that was very hard because obviously as you can
1: imagine as well so um so this whole process of actually purely getting into the army actually Mm. took some time so Mm. in the meantime we worked and stayed in london and supported ourselves um so like i said this was uh this was early june it wasn't until the, the January of the next year, so the January 2007, that I actually started my basic yeah. training. And as I see your face, Scotty, like, yeah. So I went into a winter training into yeah. Gacha Garrison. Oh. So a young South African, freshly off the plane, going up north, I was I was absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I remember days where we would go for a run and we will have the... Um, we will have either the four tunner or one of the jeeps, uh, the land cruisers, in front of us breaking ice. Like you oh would run God. and there's little puddles <laughs> or you know, deeper sections yeah. and they would drive through it to break the ice so that we can run through it. And yeah, I mean, I was, what, you know, army talk, mm. I was in clip. I was <laughs> in clip 24 7 and on exercises. I couldn't even, um, I remember one day my, on an exercise, My hands were that cold. We were an early morning attack and the corporal was standing behind me and he was kicking me in the head going, (laughs) fire your rifle, Van Gass. Fire your rifle. And I'm like, corporal, I can't. I couldn't get my safety catch off. My hands was that cold that I couldn't get my safety catch off to fire my rifle. And in the meantime, I'm getting kicked in the head by the (laughs) corporal chasing, you know, going why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do because i couldn't so so yeah so so great memories through through my basic training <laughs> yeah really good but oh, we made it yeah. we made it you know i think out of a you know especially basic training it, it, it's where they really you know you look back on it now and you think actually it was it was fun to some degree mm-hmm. and you look back on it now and i laugh about it so much um you know especially little incidents like that but Oh my word! When you're in it, you're you're thinking this is the worst place ever. And there's multiple times I thought, if this is what the army's about, I made a really bad choice. <laughs> I really made a bad decision here. So, but once you get through basic training, you know it's it's a total different life.
0: That must have been an amazing feeling once you once you passed and once you you know got that hat. You must have been absolutely buzzing.
1: Don't yeah, so it hat, I just, So
0: Don't on the hat topic, hat.
1: there you go. <laughs> on the hat topic, it's not a hat. It's um, the rest of the army wear hats. The the regiment we we wear berets we wear mar- maroon berets so uh, sorry so, yeah. sorry
0: guys sorry to everyone <laughs> listening there I've made a, I've made a massive faux pas and you know so what was it like getting this maroon beret sorry uh. <laughs> that sounds better that sounds better so now <laughs> I can
1: answer your question um, it, you know it it really was it was it was a true It was one of those moments that will forever, ever sit in your memory. And, you know, it's one of the best memories. Because, and I'll be honest, you know, I I had a very tough time through my basic training. Um, I was set back with uh, a very bad groin injury, which took uh, significant time to heal. So it meant I didn't even, I didn't pass out uh, with my original platoon that I started. So I had to go on to a uh, a rehabilitation unit for a number of times. And then what the, uh, what's the word again, Scott? You got kind of put back
2: um oh it's just um back
1: squatted back squatted that's the word so i actually had to get back squatted due to injury so i kind of had to start new relationships with a new group of people at a different stage of their training so i had to kind of almost do a little bit of the training again just to build my fitness back up so for me that was a big setback but again it's actually that second group I actually made better friends and obviously we then went on to battalion with those guys um so 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 once I did stand on that you know that pass-off parade um, Mm. and receiving my maroon beret was was truly a a a wonderful feeling like I say having for me having it taking a little bit longer than planned or expected Mm. but it, it just made it even more worth while well, and, 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 you know, the significance of the parachute regiment and what we stand for uh, even more so.
0: Oh, amazing. The
2: thing, Alex, is um, when Jacko was doing his training, he always still wore a bit of like a... Uh, it's just like a, a beanie or something during training. And then if some of these training instructors would see guys like myself in, the, in a corps, we were called hats. Um, or crap hats was the word to be honest. Most more, more specific. Correct. Thank you very much. <laughs> but needless to say, it was us guys that used to bring all this stuff for them to the front. So it wasn't for us, they wouldn't get their gloves and their socks and everything else. So <laughs> other than that, it was good. But yeah, guys, it's fantastic. I've worked with um, a few paras uh, in the close protection circuit afterwards. Um, great lads. Great lads. Learned so much from them. Um, yeah. And I'm sure that was a great day as well, to let your family know back in so, South Africa. Did they come over for the passing out parade, Jackal?
1: Yeah. So, so that was again. That was uh, one of those amazing experiences. That my mum, my mum, uh, she came over, and like I said, my sister lived in the UK at oh, the time wow. as well. So, to to have them there was such a special moment to share, and and you know to see the you know the joy on their faces that I have, you know, because obviously they've been there the whole journey along the way. Yes, you know, communication, you know, as mm. you know, as a as a as a boy or as a son or as a man you know we are bad at that you know we
0: yeah
1: it, it was i love you know my parents were not here for me for months but they just knew that i was all right you know and i'll touch your base with my sister when i needed her you know oh i've got a week enough, can i stay with you in your flat in london you know oh suddenly <laughs> i know her but uh but i always knew that their support and their love for me was always always there and and, and to share that moment you know was you know it was amazing it, it really was good
0: Oh, brilliant. So, moving forward then, your, to your first deployment, so that was then to Afghanistan, was that in 2008 then, if you passed in 2007, am I right? Correct,
1: 2008? yeah, 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 that's right. So, so as you say, so I passed out about, again, the summer of 2007, so I was still, uh, you know, a, a young private, a young Tom that we call in the army, I was a very young Tom, um, and... Egg. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Frog. Exactly. <laughs> so um, it just so happened. So I, I, then went on to to join um, SFSG, uh, so One Para Special Forces Support Group, and we were already really allocated a space within B Company. But yeah. at that very moment in time, B Company was in Afghanistan as it stood yeah. on their rotation. So um, we were just. This was an opportunity for us to then just get all sorts of qualifications because again within the sfsg we use slightly different radio systems we use slightly different uh, uh weapon systems and yeah. uh and and again it was a great opportunity to get qualified on all these new kind of systems that we're going to be on heavy weapons uh drivers lights you know all that kind of stuff and by the time we get in we kind of just roll in and we can just play our role within the company and that's exactly what happened so we were kind of under the hat of a of a company uh, to do all this, and then once they rolled back in, uh, we we just slotted straight into B company, yeah. and it was about uh, it was literally it was about five, six, seven months in. Mm. Um, I was actually on we were on a different rotation, and um, I was down in, in in Portsmouth actually on a course, um, and my sergeant called me up going van gas, you know, there's a car waiting outside you getting escorted back to the barracks you know you're you going to Afghan and I'm like what you're on about so basically my old boss uh, actually from depot got called up to fill in for another officer yeah. uh, and there was a there was an opportunity well a training opportunity it was to go out on both operations and training missions so training the Afghan uh, oh, soldiers or okay. army so so it's a combined kind of operation and mm. um, and one of the blokes um, had a few uh, personal problems um, at home, and he's requested to you know to not go. And because my boss knew me, clearly it impressed him during the trip. You know the, the, the uh, my time within in in, in depot um, requested that you know I go with him on on the store. So it was a great opportunity mm-hmm. at a very young age, or as in, within my soldier's career to go to Afghanistan to to do that. Um, and I had to step up to the game, you know, I had to step up to the plate as a, like, I've only, you know, six months ago, I've just came out of my basic training. Now mm. I'm training other, you know, soldiers. Yeah. So I had to step up as a lance corporal to a degree in that yeah. role, uh, an acting role. Um, and again, on operations as well, I just had to be on top of it. So mm. I came away from that tour, you know, with a great deal more experience than anyone else, um, learned myself, grew within myself, and I, and I loved the experience. Um, so that, like I say, that took me through a second tour quite swiftly, loved every bit of it. Um, we then went on to our normal rotation. I shifted back into, because this was for another company, I shifted back into B Company, yeah. and it just so happens that actually, you know, five months after returning from afghan i was now back on my second tour the beginning yeah. of 2009 uh, yes. you know for me this was heaven It we just uh scotty will know once you're out there you just kind of you want you want you know they played a different role um you know scotty you guys will be what
2: on two three year rotations and stuff like that you know quite something, big something like that yeah yeah i knew the guys that were out there on the combat logistics patrols and stuff going out there and they were yeah they were getting quite battered every couple of years really that's it uh, yeah to get back out there but yeah it was pretty tough on the old rotations but as you were saying a young guy cutting his teeth that's what you really wanted you wanted exactly. to put your training into practice like for me when i i joined up in 95 um northern ireland was the, the place to go and get, you, get your boots on the ground and that's what it was and again for you um, right that conflict or war was Afghanistan and has been trained as a a fighting machine or a unit with a well that's Is the that thing that, you know we did,
1: all our, all my staff through training you know all my staff through depot they were guys from two and three para they have just returned oh. from mm. Afghanistan you know let's say you know anything between six and eight months ago they have first hand experience. Yes. Basically what the British Army had to do was take the you know the, the training booklet and rip it in half mm. and rewrite it all. Because it, it was all conventional fighting. It was all, like you say, you know, um, Northern Ireland, uh, you know, it wasn't desert-oriented, it wasn't it Afghan-orientated, wasn't it, Afghan yeah. it wasn't what we're facing now orientated. And yeah. what those staff members brought to the table was, I've just been there, this is how we have to train to yeah. go out. This is what you're going to be facing. And because of that and the stories these guys were telling, like Scottie said, we were burning... Mm. burning to get out there you know we were absolutely we did everything we can to get out to afghanistan because this is what we trained for yeah. and then like you say to have that first opportunity was absolutely amazing and before i knew it i was already on my second tour and already you know uh, quite a you know ahead above the rest of my you know you, the guys that actually came with me because i've I kind of come with experience to a degree yeah, yeah. And, and having been in that environment already. So the second time around was a lot easier and the second time around was on a full operation, you know, full-scale, um, you know, uh, military operation. So no training involved whatsoever. It was purely mm. just there to, to do the job that we do with SFSG. Yeah.
0: yeah. So and was that then... at
1: the
2: time, Jacko, if you don't mind me jumping in, um, you know, you were out there, I've, I read in some of your bio, you were in a, a big, long humdinger of a firefight. Just prior to getting injured, do you mind just chatting about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no, no problem at all. But, but exactly that. So, you know, um, we saw a great deal of action over that summer. Uh, you know, from the word go, you know, literally what I loved about uh, our obviously, there's certain aspects we can't go too deep into because yeah. of the role that I that I played, but it was the variety. Mm. Of roles that I played with, you know, this unit and and, and the support that we do give uh, uh, out there, um, and that's what I loved. You know, you, my role changed almost on every operation, or and 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 some guys might find it difficult. I actually thrived on it because I saw it as skill building. I saw yeah. it like, you know, one day you're a machine gunner, the other day you're a you know you're a section commander, the next day you're literally a security for the head shed, and. Or you're, you know, you're 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 transporting a, uh, you know, a high value target, or, or whatever it might be. It it literally was, as it comes, you know, stuff with helicopters, stuff in, uh, on on vehicle stuff, on foot. It was it was amazing, and I loved every bit of it. Oh, wow! By you're, time, do, you're doing
0: everything, you're literally doing everything. It's literally exactly. What, it, yeah. yeah. That sounds, it sounds like you loved it as well. It yeah, was, absolutely. It's it's, it's it's like having that role. You know, you you're
2: going out to do a job. And what we used to say was as well, like, as Jacko said, people get injured, people get hurt. You've got to step up to that person's shoes to get in and do that role. So it was like for us, we were going, right, we need a signaler. You were putting that disc in your head. Yeah. You're now a signaler today. Again, you were doing that. You were doing everything. So as a young Tom or a, long, a young La- Lance Jack half in charge of a section, you're there with your guys. You have got to know everybody's role. So... That's why the good guys get out in these jobs because there's, you know, I mean, you can't really make mistakes. You've got to get out there and do yeah. whatever's needed. And that's where the training comes in. Exactly. Train, train, train. And as you were saying, the other guys from the different companies were coming back and they were bringing that continuity and realism to your n- new training. As you were saying, that rule book, chuck it in the bin. Yeah. You know what <laughs> I mean? They were coming and saying, right, that works out there. For that weapon system, don't use that oil use this one, use that, do that, and you're gone, perfect.
1: Exactly, exactly. And especially, as you would know as well, you know, once, uh, you know, the first couple of months is fine in in terms of, uh, you know, manpower and stuff like that. But again, we're stepping up to different roles and different tasks. It's especially once the R&R rotations start kicking in. You know, this is when you start giving the guys their relief, you know, the two weeks out of country to come back to their families. Now you're losing two three four members of your section you know yeah. that's a way so again having to step up like you say if the signaler is on his RR, someone needs to be able to
2: mm.
1: be to carry the kit operate it fully mm. functionally and yeah. make sure that it works on the ground um, and again you know whether you're a minigunner or or whatever role there is so once mm. that R rotation kicks in that's yeah. when it really kind of steps in because, you know, you're, you're already three or four people down within, within your unit um, on, on a regular basis after that then for the rest yeah. of the tour. So, but kind of moving forward, basically. So this was our kind of, the continuous of, of our, the, you know, five and a half months out there. And, and, oh. and I think that's just the, this is the big thing is that I, I had a mere two weeks left. Literally, I had two weeks two left weeks. in theatre. yeah before coming back home so you know i i made it really easy for the boys because most of my stuff was already packed you know most of the (laughs) stuff was already you know i got injured and it was like okay just sort a little bit of paperwork he's done the rest so you know the guys didn't have to pack my bags they didn't have to pack my you know my bunk bed up and all that kind of stuff most of it was done i literally had like one or two sets of first kit you know some operational kit and then just some stuff uh, you know that we use as well on top of uh, the, 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 the the normal circumstances. I had a few bits out. The rest was all kind of packed and ready to go yeah. to get shipped back to the UK. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and it basically led to this uh, you know this operation. In any way, it was uh, it was late August. Uh, well, to be honest. It was exactly it was it was the evening of the nineteenth of August, so the, the night before my birthday, and um, we joking. we operate yeah we operate mostly at you know the the, the hours of darkness, um, and this operation came in you know we were after this guy for a very long time he was a IED facilitator so he was making IEDs and and suicide vests and it was also during the time of the Afghan presidential elections, so. Um, This was a crucial time because for many years, obviously, we've worked alongside the Afghanistan government in many various ways to get a free and fair election, you know, within their country and stuff like that. So these guys, we got great intel. These guys were planning to to bomb some of the, you know, to use suicide uh, bombers to go and disrupt some of the voting stations within certain areas. Um, and the intel was strong and we lifted off that night uh rather late landed basically almost on his roof we did what we needed to do um and we, we caught him and it, it was solid solid you know this guy we were after him for a very long time we Good. we extracted a a great deal of, of IED facilitating stuff. Uh, again, we found the suicide base. We even found the guys, you know, the young boys, the young oh, men wow. that they were gonna use as suicide yeah. bombers. Um, we managed to get them. So in terms of the actual operation, it was extremely successful. Yeah. And then it was once we moved from the target back out to the desert to get picked up by the helicopters to get flown out uh, back to camp, you know, back to safety. Uh, and it was about half an hour forty minutes into the walk. We usually make sure uh that we have a good you know a fair distance out of away from any village or any mm. any form of settlement because the helicopters uh u k helicopters are so uh, they are worth gold you know we only have a number of lifters you know we're not anywhere near the scale of the u.s army or u.s Mm. marines or whatever it might be you know these guys i think i think there's a the u.s marine corps in itself you know this is which is actually quite a small part of the whole uh, you know u.s army the u.s marine corps itself is bigger than the army navy and air force of the Mm. you know of britain put together crazy My point is, is that we couldn't lose a helicopter. So we always made sure that we are, you know, we're far into the desert and Mm. it's safe for them to land, pick us up and go again. Yeah. Um, And it's on the way to this pickup point. The call came over saying that for some reason, they weren't actually happy with the landing site. They gave us coordinates for a new one. So we had to move off a proven route, which we knew was clear, was, you know, safe, secure onto a new one. And this is where the trouble started because obviously cover of darkness, so by this stage, it's, it's at two o'clock in the morning. Um, it's my birthday. I'm happy. You know, I'm going, hey, 20th of August. Here we go. Um, and yeah, we spotted some movement on the high ground. Uh, and a couple of guys in the patrol information couldn't identify weapons. We all went firm. That evening as well, we worked quite closely with some of the Afghan forces, uh, Af- yeah. Af- Afghan guys. And as they speak the language, we said to them, hey, you go forward. Tell these guys we're yeah. in the area. Conduct yeah. some searches, and we'll move on.
2: Yeah, They
1: did so, and as they approached them, they shouted out a number of verbal commands. Yeah. They didn't react to it, and then um, one of them just opened up with a spray of AK-47.
0: Oh, my God. Uh,
1: in our general direction. So this initiated... Obviously, we, we had them lasered, we had them tagged. You know, yeah. So we dropped these guys very quickly. Yeah. But what then became apparent was that... Um, we were taking on a much larger force than just this few guys because there was a number of muzzle flashes or you know, fire getting returned our way from different locations. And suddenly we recognized that, you know, we're taking on a bit of a hornet's nest here with loads of muzzle flashes appearing from different areas. Yeah. Um we had the we had the, you know, the the gunship above us, the eye in the sky. Yeah. Um, confirming as well they were actually trying to flank us they were trying to do a left flank on us as well which brought them you know beautifully nicely into our fire you know actually not mine but me and my team's uh uh, arc of fire so we saw them coming we dealt with these guys but i was very close and i think again you can stipulate all you know how did it Hmm. happen that night but the one big thing that I think that stood out, I, was, I had an Afghan um, a machine gunner very close to me. And obviously he was firing and this machine gun spits a big flame. Yeah. So I think he was the target in a sense. Yeah. So, um, so, so basically two RPGs was fired um, kind of his way. The one came over our heads and exploded in the distance, you know, totally, uh, you know, missed us. You know, they're quite inaccurate things to fire Uh, and the second one was fired but this one was low and this one was bouncing and ricocheting off the ground so kind of heading one direction one second and then another the other but that's exactly what happened so it was bouncing and ricocheting constantly changing direction Mm. and in the side of my night vision goggles at this time I was giving covering fire to my sniper partner because I was attached to a sniper that night yeah Um, so it was my job to be his sharpshooter and to carry the ladders and support him in his role,
0: yeah. um,
1: which I loved. And um, and luckily we were making turns carrying this telescopic ladders. Because they're bloody heavy. And the whole, <laughs> the whole night we were making turns carrying them. And for some reason, you know, it's a one time I'm actually really, really grateful I have been carrying them or it was my turn because that's what saved my life that night because I was, and anyway, I was down on one knee giving covering fire to him. He was putting on a new magazine and then this RPG I can see in the side of my night vision goggles was kind of heading my way and I was like whoa this is going to be close and in a a split second reaction I twisted my head away and I turned my back to this oncoming rocket and that very second I did that the rocket clipped or hit the ladders and then ricocheted off the ladders and then well exploded but most of the the blast was kind of veered away by that, and then mm. obviously ripped the arm off and part of my leg. But it could have been so much worse if you think about it. I, I would have taken a full hit by an RPG in the ribs, um, and just because of my action, that last split second, and yeah. you know the, the material, that that kind of the ladder taking most of the impact. Um, you know the blast flew; it, it blew me about. I think it was a good five, six meters away from my original position, you know, like flung in the air and and down to the ground again. But that's when I kind of, I think during that time, I lost a couple couple of seconds of consciousness Mm. and landing and getting back to, to what happened, you know, I was so confused because I'm on my back. I was firing my weapon a couple of seconds ago. I can hear the guy still firing in the background. Why am I lying on my back? And I can see, like, bits burning all around me. And Mm. just the confusion was horrific, horrific. And then suddenly I kind of, I was like, well, I need to get back into this firefight. And uh, I was still laying on my back, and I was trying to hold my rifle to kind of sit back up. When I, my rifle just kind of fell to the ground, or, you know, I couldn't hold it correctly. And it's then when I look down and I see, wow, I've lost my left arm. And that's when it really, really sunk in, like, okay this is bad i then tried to apply a tourniquet but the shock was you know i was shaking and i was <clears> like <throat> you know i knew i had to do it but i couldn't do it up tight enough yeah um you know I, I wasn't even sure if i was doing it right but um luckily one of my friends uh, a young soldier called reese realized i was out of my position he kind of came crawling over saw where i was and started helping with the tourniquet and then reared in because my radio was then obviously completely destroyed. It was the side that I carried my radio on as well. Mm. Um, you know, big ammo pouches was gone and all kinds of stuff. So, um, so yeah, he then radioed in and I very soon received uh, medical care from the medic on the ground to, you know, life-saving yeah. uh, 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 medical care that evening. And, and you know, it's amazing. Um, you know, we train for these situations and I, I always make sure that I pay attention that if something like this happened to a friend, I'll be able to save his life, and suddenly I'm the guy there on the floor, uh, yeah. going. I, I I really hope you paid attention <laughs> during the medical classes because I really need it. But no, the you know the guys did a great job, and you know there's a number of times you know they they truly truly stepped up to the mark because we actually had to bring in uh, air support as well, and. You know, it's still this day that it's, I think, recorded the closest it's been to, you know, it's nearly a blue on blue. We, the JTAC that night was phenomenal by doing that. You know, we actually yeah.
2: had... How close uh, were you, Jackal, when the danger close, or was it...
1: Add one more danger, mate. Yeah, danger, danger close. Yeah. yeah. So, um, the, I mean, I could feel the thumps of the, you know, the yeah. air support going in. The guys had to lay over me. And then, you know, ground and shrapnel was falling over us, you know, literally like. Oh, my God. They look like covering us. It, it's literally, it's, it is like, you know, a movie. You, you, you know, you can't write these things. Um, Yeah, there's times where they literally like stop treating me. They lay over me, covering me, and I can feel the dust kind of falling on top of us. And then... They go back and then keep doing their job. Yeah. So it's amazing. So you know, I, I literally have my life to thank for those guys. Um, but like I say, we then tried to get uh, helicopters in. It was quite a struggle that because because we were in such a severe firefight at that time. You know, we the, again, like I say, the British helicopters they just said no, we're not coming in until this is neutralised. We're not, and um, we can't re- You know, be risk getting mm. shot down. Luckily, again, we we calmed the situation down after a little while and then there was another call sign called a flipper call sign which is an American American um, helicopter group you know um, and they were like not far away from us and they're like you know what we'll come in Um, and three Chinooks came flying in and I remember as well you know I was in and out of consciousness all night then but the one thing I do remember that night is actually that sound of a Chinook you know it's it's like again it's something out of a steven seagal movie or something Mm. like that it's just like i can hear the cavalry you know i can hear free you know this is this is savior coming over the hill and that chinook that sound and then i remember just the flame you know from the side door from the minigun as it's you know like seeing anything move that yeah just that sound of the minigun you know firing over my head and then the helicopter basically landed I would say probably like 15 feet away from us, like nearly on top of us. They're just like, just get him in and let's go. And they, they were, it was literally like, get guys loaded and get out of there. Um, and yeah, so basically I was then treated by a, a doctor on board. Um, mm. and And then I think... I think there was something significant about being on a helicopter that because on the ground, I was constantly like, I need to work with my boys. I need to work on like staying awake, you know, listen to every single mm. word the medic was saying, you know, do this, do this, you know, all the reactions, staying with them. And there was, there was a relief that we're out of there. Mm. And it was like a moment that I just realized, actually, I can relax now. And, mm. and the moment I relaxed, I lost consciousness. And, you know, that was it. I... I woke up six days later, you know, in, in, in Hospital.
0: Oh, wow. That is, that that was incredible. I mean, that sounds terrifying. And like you said, almost like a movie. I'm really like for something like like that to happen. It's also amazing. Like all your training just kicked in. um, And everything that you trained and worked for, you know, had all kind of saved your life really. And everything that, that that went on so exactly yeah so moving on from that which is just i mean incredible and crazy so you woke up six days later um i'm assuming your family was your family then around with you then or um because i'm assuming they must have been informed and flown flown out to go and see you
1: yeah yeah they were so that i mean that was part of it as well you know so as i said six days later i woke up out of an induced coma um seeing my family's faces around me seeing some of my friends bloody hell you know i was confused because yeah my last cl- and obviously in the meantime with all the drugs and all the everything that's getting pumped into me you know your mind it just it's like it's like uh, i don't know um, you know, it's almost like putting a screensaver on, on a TV, but with yeah. a war movie still running in the background. You know, yeah. it, it, that's how my mind was like, obviously, it's blank, but it was all the fire, all the gunfire, all the action. Everything was still going on because that was the last kind of action.
0: Yeah. Like,
1: you know, still going on. So I was I was literally still convinced I was in Afghanistan.
0: Yeah. And
1: suddenly, and my last clear memory was actually being in a firefight. Um, so suddenly I wake up and I see my mom and my dad and my sister and a few friends and I'm like, no, 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 no. You can't be here. You can't, you know, you can't be in Afghanistan. I, I, re- I knew I was injured. I can remember yeah. looking at the arm, realizing, oh, okay, that's bad. But I was just like, no chance. These people are in Afghanistan. And they were like, no, Jacko, we're, we're in Celioc, you're in you're, Selio, you're in Birmingham, you're in Birmingham, you're okay. And I was like, I don't know where Birmingham is. <laughs> I haven't, I don't know where Selio is. Like, yes. it's it's not on the map in Afghanistan. And they're like, but you're not in Afghanistan. I was like, it doesn't matter. I ha- I literally had to get wheeled from my intensive care unit to a window to, see. just for my brain, to actually look outside, to see other buildings, see cars, oh, yeah. see green trees, see... <clears throat> see British, you know, to see. Okay, I am not in the Afghan environment, and I did think. I went great. Well, I've gone from Afghanistan to Senegal. That sounds
0: terrifying. Not being it, able to know where you are, and that it sounds It was really absolutely.
1: You know, it, it, it's just like it, I was absolutely terrified because, like I say, I. You know, we don't know where you are in the world. It, it was horrible, and when you know where you were last, it, it's not a nice place. And the last thing you want is the people closest to you to be in, in you know in a, in a place like that and um, so it, it was like you say I, I didn't stop until they proven to me that I'm actually back in the UK um, and, and yeah and, and, and you know that was a difficult thing as well because this was the first time I could reflect on what happened to me because I knew I lost my arm there was like that click was there you know I saw that night you know this is why I was injured but I did not know I had not a clue of the the, you know the severity of that night of the injuries I sustained because I had a uh, collapsed left lung you know on top of so I had obviously so first injury I sustained is the uh, amputation of my left arm just above the elbow I had a collapsed left lung I had shrapnel wounds to my left side which punctured some of my internal organs which ripped my stomach apart so I had to have a colostomy and uh, you know, I've never heard of a colostomy. I don't know what it looks like. And then I look down and I'm going, what's this thing sticking out of the bottom of my tummy? I've lost a third of muscle and tissue on my left upper thigh. So again, I looked down and my, my whole leg is in bandages and you know, and, and in like a splint and all kinds of stuff. I fractured my knee, I fractured my ankle and I had the fasciotomy on both sides of my left calf. So I looked down going, whoa. What is all this? And this is the first time, you know, I realised that, you know, this is actually career, you know, ending injuries. Not even changing, career ending, especially within the military. So, so yeah, so that was a bitter pill to swallow. Because there was times in my head when I was like, you know what, I know there's amazing prosthetics out in the world, yeah. um, and I'll just be, I'll, I'll get something that's going to fit my arm, that's going to hold a rifle, and I'll be out in Afghanistan in six okay. months' time. Done. You know, this, that was literally my thought process, and then, eventually, when I realised the severity of my injuries, that that was not going to be, and that was a very, very difficult
0: thing to deal with. But it seems like you, like, uh, like I said, i mentioned you you I'm not too sure what the time period was, but it seems like you had a had a thought process of I'm not going to let this stop me and define me. Even though you've, when, how long was it from? I don't know how to phrase this now. But how long was it from this recovery to then deciding to you know get back out and start doing stuff? How, how, I mean, was it a couple years? Was it uh, twelve months? Yeah,
1: it's still it was still quite a significant time, but I think I understand what you're trying to get to, and I I understand it, and and I'll I'll answer the question in that sense. So, so it took me about two and a half months of in Mm -hmm. terms of this this battle I had with myself because, and the battle I had was that my mind, my head, was like, I'm still in the army, I'm still going to be a soldier, I'm going to go out to Afghanistan on my third tour, on a fourth tour, I'm Mm going to have a full career, and my body was going no 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 no, mate look at me you know we are battered up yeah. we need to chill out so there was this clash between my mm. mind and my body my mind and my body and it was almost like my body was like spiting my mind you know i was getting one infection after the other i was getting ill um i was you know just my recovery was very very slow mm. and again that was frustrating mm. and it's not until i had another big setback i actually because i think uh, again the first thing you know once you go on they, there's like a it's like a stepping stone you follow mm. it's from it's point of injury okay how do we deal with this you're mm. in celiac hospital um what does that look like and then any continuous uh um, operations or care or anything you look after the next step you know f- in terms of your recovery is getting out of celiac or, mm. is to get out of you know i think it was s5 you know ward s5 or mm. it's getting out of celiac it's headley court headley court was this amazing you know they read to you about it they present it to you when you're there you know this is where you, it's it sounds like it literally sounds like heaven like this is your you know this is where you're going to go and you're going to learn to walk you're going to learn to run you're going to learn to do all your prosthetic stuff you know or whatever the injuries you sustained um so headley court was always the biggest the next big step in your recovery phase so that's what you you're working hard in celio to then get to Hedley Court, to then work hard, to then follow the next step out from there, blah, 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 blah. So I actually eventually got to Hedley, uh, Hedley Court after two and a half months. Um, and I was purely, I was only there for a week when I had to get, be, be sent back to, uh, to wow. Selly Oak because I, I've got uh, an infectious virus or something like that that kind of crept up on me somewhere. Oh. And, um, and this setback really, and I mean, When i mean a setback, this was really physically and emotionally, it destroyed me. And I actually cried one night. I I laid in my hospital bed and I sobbed and I sobbed and I sobbed. And, And, you know, all these horrible feelings of why am I here? Why did I survive? Why all this kind of came over me? But also in that very moment, you know, the biggest light of them all shone, And I was like, actually, I made peace that night that actually I realized that, you know what, I... May I'm not a soldier anymore, and maybe my time within the army is done now. But if I can't be a soldier, what can I be? Mm. You know, what other challenges there is out there that I can be? Let's go and find stuff out that I can do and what I can't do. And and I know I'll be fail. You know, I'll, I'll face many failures al- along the way. But let's go and figure out how this new Jacko kind of. How it works, how his life with one arm and half a leg missing, and blah 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 blah. But that night, the, the point I'm making is yeah. that that night my my body and the mind synced; they were yeah. on the same page. That yeah. you know what, there is an element of recovery. There is a time scale we're going to go through. We need to do this together. And since then, and it's almost then as if someone pressed a fast forward button on my life. Mm. Since then, because. Then I saw significant improvements in my rehabilitation, my recovery, and then the challenges along the way. Um, so, so yeah. So that was about two and a half months before that realization. And then I think it was another seven months of, of you know, really hard work before I was. Well, I could say probably you know, back to some form of normality or or independence. You know, not requiring someone to help me feed or get dressed or move about and all that kind of stuff so another so yeah you know touching on, on on a year of 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 rehab
0: so i'm assuming did your parents have to then go back to south africa or did they just how long were they in the uk because i mean when we spoke to obviously josh and david obviously their their parents lived in the uk but obviously yours live in south africa so did, did they try and stay with you for as long as possible throughout this process or i mean i must, or did they you know jump to and fro
1: yeah you know it's a great question and, and 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 on that i i think the first thing i need to say and i and i need to elaborate on is that you know the system that the army had in place then and i'm i'm pretty sure other people might have different opinions mm. on it and obviously again like anything else they had to learn and adapt mm. massively along the way but the system they had in place over the time i got injured back in 2009 um was flawless you know when i got injured uh, and and they notified my parents you know within 24 hours of my injury my parents had a visa my parents had a plane ticket um booked and they were on a flight uh, when uh, they landed at Heathrow they were prioritized on the plane to get off the plane first they were taking a special route, you know, hmm. through customs and stuff like that. A uh, parachute regiment officer was waiting for them in a car to literally drive them straight. There was no time waiting. It was not like, you know, there was literally hmm. like, this guy, his parents is here, they need to. Accommodation was sorted, food, po- you know, parcels were sorted or tokens. Uh, they were, very well looked after and i would always thank the army welfare for what they've done you know it was unbelievable what they've done That's but incredible. in terms of answering your question is yes so so my my um a little bit unbeknown to me as well so during that time and and, and again uh you look back on it now you understand my my, my, my parents actually went through a divorce or split up not the actual divorce but mm. kind of separated uh during my time in afghanistan they obviously didn't want to make me aware of this because of the nature of my job and the the, the area that I was in so but my the point was uh, is that yes they came over together and my dad actually went uh he was there for about two weeks uh my mom stayed in on for about a month and a half uh, which is amazing and and again all cared for all looked after all sorted uh, but yes a time actually did there was a time when she actually had to go back
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and there was actually only one more occasion that she came in and it was not till much later on I was much further down my rehabilitation uh, kind of road uh, and at Headley Court as well but um, but yeah there is only a time limit on that but yeah so very difficult very hard like you say when your parents aren't from here or you know mm. or around the corner and stuff like that so it was very hard on my mum especially but on my parents to to eventually leave and they kind of leave my you know me to kind of just carry on with, with life here on this recovery journey
0: oh brilliant that's amazing that the military went and did that for you guys the welfare officers there have just gone absolute above and beyond i mean that sounds absolutely incredible that they went and did all of that yeah, um yeah. I was, so this mindset has changed you've you flicked a switch i mean i've read all your achievements which are just incredible and some i just i couldn't believe how i like what was the what made you then go you know what i'm going to do now i mean i've been in an induced coma for 6 days you know i've lost my arm i'm going to go to the north pole Where, <laughs> what, what was what, what was did a part of you i mean what did your parents say first of all when they heard you were going to go unsupported with a team to the north pole i'm assuming they were pretty much like what about you go to a library <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: there's an element you know they are you know, very caring and, and obviously always worried unless, especially being on the other side of the pond and stuff. So, uh, even during my army career, I have, um, adopted the philosophy that what my parents don't know, won't kill ah. them. So, so there was always like a need to know basis, if that makes sense. <laughs> so, so yeah, so, so they only found out a, a lot of my mischievous or, or, or uh, you know, I don't even know, you know um, what's the word activities from all around the world much later on or like I say once the moment was has passed and there's no more time to 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 worry and it it worked the same you know especially with the North Pole and 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 even more so with Everest you know I would I would kind of say to my sister you know she was always been my my kind of form of contact within the family and I would go you know I'm doing this uh, so i don't know how you're going to do it but just keep mom off my case for you know
0: <laughs> a month
1: or two months you know and just saying he is somewhere he's got no signal he'll you know he is okay i have spoken to him so so yeah, yeah. so <laughs> sure. yeah.
2: Jack, well that that's absolutely amazing just listening to your story there about sally oak and the guys it's nice to see that the system does work um yeah to get absolutely put all the all the dominoes in a row and get things to get your parents to see the loved one. I think that's fantastic. Now, you're ch- chatting there. Alex was mentioning about the North Pole. And, and like I've I, i I've said on this podcast many a times, Prince Harry is an absolute trooper um, for what he's done, um, not just the time in his military, but for helping wounded, injured and sick guys. And for my case, guys, we have had mental traumas. And even though guys that have had severe injuries like yourself, the mental trauma is must be absolutely, you know, you, you're fighting with yourself, especially at a level of being a power, you know, I mean, for being at a fight, and, you know, that's your job to go on operations to mm-hmm. sort things out, you know, and then have that ability not to actually do that. So it's a, a, a double barrel question, really. What you think about, obviously, um, Harry, fantastic, the stuff he did, walking with the wounded and going out on that expedition. Now, Obviously, you are an amputee. How does that work then? Because I've known another, a few amputees that have done stuff. Now, the, the end of the year stump must be very, very sensitive to cold. And I remember watching that documentary and you had to put stuff on it. Yeah. Like, and if you get a knock or a bang or anything on there, that could be, that's game changing. How yeah. did you manage to keep that um, functioning all the time? Because I'm sure the camera didn't, highlight everything out there
1: no no it didn't um and it, it's well there's a number of good points and questions within there i feel so so yeah so first of all like you say you know the the work prince harry has done you know for for us as servicemen and women uh, in all tri-services you know is, is so phenomenal and and what i love about him is he, he gets so bought into the thing and and i think obviously. Yes, with walking wounded. That was kind of the start of it, really. Yeah. I know he had a passion for it, and he had an idea of it. And you know, his interaction with, um, you know, with the young lad on the plane and stuff like that was kind of during a similar time periods and stuff like that. But that was kind of the first ignite, and when he said yes to be an ambassador for uh, the, the the charity, to and then being involved so deeply rooted within walking with the wounded to actually join us on. The ice was amazing and it shows you his commitment. Um, and I think that was really the start of a lot of things that really followed from there, you know. And you know, to be very honest, even the Invictus Games, you know, kind of came from that moment. You know, it's followed, it's it's a bit of a snowball effect. It started there. It was 2012, Jack, wasn't it? It was 11, yeah, 2011, yeah, yeah, so
2: 2011, but yeah.
1: But like you say, so um, there was a number of challenges we faced, uh, and, and especially myself with one arm. And this is truly where a buddy-buddy system, you know, yeah. came in. And, you know, and again, as you mentioned, you know, I'm, uh, you know we're, we're all very proud of who we are, what we are, and where we come from. You know, every single unit within the Army have their, you know, uh, you know the things they are very fond of, you know, traditions. And, why you are within the logistical corps? Why you are within the marine corps? Why you are a paratrooper? You know all that kind of stuff, and that's what makes us so unique as well. Um, and I'll be honest, you know, as a paratrooper, you know, you are brainwashed to the degree that you know you are the best. You know, you're, there's no other unit like us, and you know it's you just have to carry on. You know, as a soldier, but what I found within these environments is that. I couldn't do everything on my own and and it took a great deal of well courage from my side but also re- realization that you know we are a team and i'm no longer in the military yes the military will always be part of me and I, I was representing the military and especially the parachute regiment within these cases but my life has changed and it's one thing i'm probably most grateful for for what i've done you know like you know, like walking to the North Pole and, again, attempting Everest because these extreme environments forces you. It forces you to seek for help because, like you say, uh, Scotty, there's a number of things I found extremely difficult to do that I couldn't do on my own, and I had to turn to a member, uh, another team member, and say, can you help me with a zip? Can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? And what we did as a team, we figured out things that I can do that I excelled more than others and things that I couldn't do that some of the other members took up. Um, And it was great. Like you say, really teamwork on that operation or that, you know, that expedition was fundamental Um, in terms of uh, what I've done in terms of protecting the stump as well. Again, we, we learned a lot through training. You know, I would, we would go somewhere in Norway and, you know, I would basically nearly lose my arm from frostbite and we're like, whoa, this is bad. We, how do we mitigate this? Because we, we haven't thought, like you say, just haven't thought of, uh, you know, circulation within the mm, cold yeah. environments and, you know, kit and equipment adaption. We were just like folding the kit over and it wasn't mm. sufficient enough to do that. So we had to figure out ways, like, actually, we need to, modify the jackets and the base layers and everything we have so in the end what we do is i had a base layer that or a number of base layers and we would sew pockets onto the arm or onto the stump area and then every day every morning i would put i would crack open a food warmer you know or a hand warmer and let that warm up and then put it in the pocket and then
2: nice. um
1: I would put one layer on top of that over it so it really sealed the heat in Mm. and just keeping that the bottom of the stump really nice and warm and you know the the flow of blood through it so it's stuff like we learned the hard way you know there was times where i was like wow um is this a limiting factor for me actually going Mm. on the expeditions but we we had to think outside the box and came up with different solutions so yeah
0: amazing yeah, no. I was just going to say that an amazing lesson there as well is you know, I think Scotty has spoken about, about this as well. It's, uh, it's asking for help is actually a great strength. You know, there's obviously there's a lot of pride I think that, that that comes along, but actually having the courage to actually go, you know, what I need a bit of help is actually so important um, to actually go and do that. Um, so Jackie, yeah. then. So, Jackie, you went and trekked to the North Pole, yeah, I'm, I, um, which is absolutely incredible, um, with Prince Harry, which, I mean, did you ever think you'd be doing that when, you know, during that, that two-month period where you were having that internal battle to now, to now you're uh, in the North Pole?
1: No, to, to answer your question directly, it's no. No, no. Not even in the slightest. I mean, if you walked into my hospital room and go Jacko one day you'll track the North Pole you'll run a number of marathons you'll you know you'll do all this stuff and the climbing and the cycling I would laugh I would literally I would laugh in your face and I would say just walk out you know just just go because there were so many dark times and uncertain times and um, never in a million years have I foreseen myself having done what I've done and doing what I'm doing and planning what I want to do uh, in terms of you know with what happened to me but I think that's That's the beauty of it. It's just the uncertainty. But you you can only, I I saw it as a time in my life as well where, you know, you have two options. I can literally let this injury get the best of me. Mm. Let it ruin my life. And and basically, I I didn't let the Taliban win because, okay, yes, the Taliban that night did not kill me. They didn't kill me, but they've changed my life and they, they probably wanted to ruin my life. So if they achieve that, I might as well be dead or option 2 is actually you know you crack on with life see what it brings and let's you know just kind of roll with the punches and i only had option 2 as an option yeah. at the end of the day you know i can only choose the latter and um, and it led to everything else that, that that has come from then but yes we we've gone on to to uh, you know to to track the north pole it was a, an amazing experience um you know some of the most fun moments I have uh, on on Expedition Life comes from uh, you know the North Pole. It was the first time I've done it. Um, we had Prince Harry with us, which was again such a big bonus. He had to leave us um, after a week, uh, sadly, and it, it truly felt like we lost a team member. It, it was oh, such a okay. sad moment when that helicopter came in to pick him up and fly him away. But um, we continued on and we reached North Poland and and the whole aim was to show and the reason why there was someone like myself with an arm arm amputee and Guy as a leg amputee and Steve with a back injury and Martin with a, a gunshot wound and paralyzed arm is that we wanted to cover a pretty wide range of injuries to show people, especially the wounded community, you know, the armed forces side, but not just them, but, you know, the public as well, that life can and does carry on after injury or a setback or something like that. So we wanted to cover someone that goes, I've got something similar or I struggle with something, you know, like Jacko or one of the other members. And, um, and if they've just done what they've done to the North Pole, oh my word, then at least I can, you know, I can get off my sofa and, and go to my nearest, you know, I don't know, shop to go yeah. and buy milk. You know, if that's a struggle for them, then I can at least take that on or I can, get on a bike or you know better my life in whatever way it might be so so that was the whole point and we managed to do that and and i think just to stand on top of the north pole um you know at first was all about world first and and the first guy to do that and that was so attractive but when you once you dig down deeper to the full meaning of why we're actually doing it it's much greater than world records and like i say world first and whatever it might be it was the, the true deep meaning about it was much deeper and so much more a reason why we did what we did. Yes. And that then obviously kind of, we came back to the UK uh, and it was always meant to be a one-stop expedition, the North Pole, and that was it. And I don't think even walking with the wind it was a registered; it wasn't even a registered charity at the time. It was purely just, it was a tool to raise money to then pump money into other service charities to help the guys. Um, But we came back to the UK and everyone was asking us like, well done, what's next? So that's how Everest got born, really. So it was like a bit of a shock to the system, but that's how we came up with Everest. And I was never really meant to be part of the Everest team because I've just done the North Pole. And I had a good sit down with the founders of of the charity of, you know, with Ed Parker. uh, And he's, you know, and he's like, you know, he calls me Yarpy and he's like, Yarpy, obviously, we've told your story. And 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 again, I didn't know it. It's not until the documentary came out that I was actually a bit of a focus point. You know, my whole story and everything, like that, I didn't even know that they were doing that or going to do that. But I was a little bit of a focus point um, in the documentary. And it's like, you know, it was amazing. And we want to tell more stories like yours with other individuals. So I'm happy for you to be along because he's then... I want to use you as a mentor on Everest um, or the whole process all the way up to Everest um, so you can tell the other guys and they can you know you come with a bit of experience you've seen how life-changing this is and how you can help other people and I agreed immediately because that was amazing and I knew I wasn't gonna go to Everest until the final team gets selected but I will be along there along the way Um, and And like I say, so I joined all the training and all the selection criteria and all that kind of stuff. And it's not until we went on what would have been my final expedition with walking as a unit, we went to uh, Manuslu, uh, which is the eighth highest mountain in the world, to get altitude. Uh, We we, we went with Russell Bryce, which is a very famous climber, and he runs extremely well-organized expeditions and stuff like that. And his criteria was that Whoever goes, we, they need to have high altitude exposure. Mm. Um, so we went to get some exposure to high altitude. Because, again, he said, you could be the fittest guy in the world, but once you get to a certain level of altitude, your body can just collapse and fail or you know, not work with you.
2: Right. Think, and, what's the actual term for the lungs? The, so edema or something? Is it that what you call it, the oxygen? You get uh, like a... The, yes. Is it cerebral um, edema? Something like that, where that you just can't yeah, get enough. Yeah, something
1: edema, yeah. I was, yeah, so I, I know what you mean. are
2: that over a certain yeah. height, don't they? Yeah.
1: Unbelievable. So, and that's exactly what it is, what he wanted to see. Um, so I knew I was never going to be part of the final group, but then we went to this high altitude environment, and out of the 10 potential candidates to make the, 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 the team of four, only six of them summed it, and I was one of them. And I was, um, constantly on this trip one of the first guys myself and another guy called francis atkinson who was a doctor who got shot through the arm um we were all we were the ones that actually dealt well with the altitude mm. and got to the camps for not that it was in, ever race and stuff it was just yeah. like we got to the next point in the best condition
2: yeah.
1: uh, we were still suffering you know we're still mm. like dogs yeah. coughing and growing up and but it took the other guys much longer and worse yeah. a long time to actually settle then up into a higher altitude and and anyway we summed it we came back down and i knew i knew that was uh, you know kind of my final kind of uh, bit towards everest or you know my job done mm. and it's not until i was actually i was actually in new york running the New York Marathon when... Um... Of, of
0: course, as you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah you just, do. just throw so, someone else uh, in Yeah, just, yeah <laughs> so, so right just before feel... I was doing that, I was just doing a marathon, you know, it's yeah. pretty easy. You know, just coming yeah. back
1: from my high altitude training camp.
0: Yeah, of course, of course. As, <laughs> as, I, I thought... Oh, or as Scotty calls, a Wednesday. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. So um,
1: I came back to my Wednesday training camp. And then, yeah, and anyway, I found myself in New York ready to run. And then it uh, calls me and he's like, "Yapi, I've got some confusing news for you, but we had a good sit down with the board and the selection committee and everyone else. But it's like, obviously, we, it's important that we, it's, we want to, obviously, put someone on Everest. And it's actually important to actually potentially get someone up. It's right. like, it might not be some of the other guys but it could potentially be you so guess what you're on the team so um so <laughs> it was amazing so it was a great uh, you know great surprise and stuff like that and i was very humbled by that um and then like I say we we went to everest and again uh, most significant experience uh it was so lovely to fall into that culture the sherpa life um you know as you start climbing from the bottom of the valley you see the, ch- the changes within you know the valley floor from very green lush and it slowly starts getting more bare and brown and then into grey and then later on it's rock and snow and that's it and then eventually you reach base camp and you we then go into a whole acclimatization phase of going high up the mountain to then come back down so you you, you train your body to get used to the altitude by going up and um, spend some time at a very high altitude to then come down and that's when it recovers it 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 forms more red blood cells and then it carries oxygen better. So the next time you do it, you actually find that very same route a lot easier. And then you keep pushing your body that way. And we went for a a summit window appeared um, and we made the first push for a summit, which was amazing. Um, But we reached camp two. And uh, very soon, the weather, uh, that's the one thing, you know, you can do, it's nature, you know, weather is yeah. weather. And it turned very quickly. And we were actually stuck at Camp 2 for a number of days and making attempts as well. Making, We actually attempted to get to Camp 3. Um, and again, halfway up, had to turn around because of very high winds and rock fall and all kinds of stuff. And we, we keep seeing injuries from other teams that have gone higher up the mountain. And then returning back, absolutely battered. Um, And we made a decision, actually, let's go back to base camp. Let's wait for a better uh, weather window. Let's wait for better weather to come in. um, And we'll make a second attempt. Um, Because at base camp, it's a really good setup, good food. Again, we can just rest much better. Um, And it's once at base camp that Russell Bryce, our expedition leader, just eventually called us in. Uh, The next day after arriving back and just said, you know what, guys, this is not to be, you know, we were facing avalanches all the time. We're facing extremely different temperatures than he's ever seen before and weather systems. And even the Sherpas wasn't happy with us being there or, you know, trying to get to the top. So he made a call and it was devastating. It was literally at that that stage, we were 10 weeks away, you know, Mm. from our family and our loved ones and everyone. And now we've got to go back and say that we failed. You know, we didn't make it. Um, it was a better to pull to swallow. But it's, you know, we still only, it took a few days to settle in. We slowly made our way down the mountain and got flown out by helicopter um, further down in the valley. And it's literally as we arrived, I think it was about three days after we cancelled. And then um, three or four days later, another team. Uh, went up to try and, and, and go up to the summit. Quite a few teams. But anyway, a big avalanche came and killed eleven climbers. You know, and oh, it was well, like yeah. you know, we were sitting in Kathmandu at that stage in a very nice hotel and you're like, wow, you know, that could have been us. And it sunk in immediately that you know we were really uh disappointed and peed off about not going to the top and other pl- and other other units and uh, organizations staying it was, it was literally us going down yeah. and everyone else was going to stay and wait it out and suddenly you realize that you know what we made the right decision here so, um, so yes yeah, sadly that was the truth and, and we came back to the UK with a, with a bit of a better heart knowing that you know we can always go again but uh, yeah it was a bit of a pull to swallow.
0: But I'm, I mean, it sounds like the right call. I mean, Everest uh, it, it claims lives every every single year, so it definitely feels like the right call to make. And even to get up to Camp Two is is way more than me than a lot of people have done. <laughs> so, yeah, but, it's Scotty.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that Jack, just listening to you there. Uh, obviously, I knew a little bit of your backstory before you started talking. I think you're such a a great inspiration for many a people who's going to be listening to this, um, not just as an amputee, but just someone in, in life in general. Um, as I've said in this, uh, forgive us time, many a, t- many a times, none of us ever want a handout. We just want a hand up. Yeah. And have and have that initial hand up is making that difference to putting one step in front of the other. And what you've proven, again, just listening to you, and Alex will back me up with this, and I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. The stuff that you've achieved, and I'm no doubt that there will be other crazy feats out there that you'll be doing, and hopefully we'll get onto that <laughs> in a little bit later. But, um, yeah, mate, it absolutely blown me away by listening to it, and I'm sure people will be sitting at home going, let me tell you something, I can get my trainers back on, and I'm not walking the Everest, but I'm walking to the shop. That's yeah, a start. Yeah. That's a start. And, and thanks I thanks for your... Um, I- story i think just
1: on that point and it's exactly that uh, scotty that i i I would hope that the listeners or anyone else can can take from this is that not everyone needs to challenge himself in the way that i do you know yes i go and do the extreme stuff from north pole challenges and climbing and all that kind of stuff you know you know a, a challenge for someone listening like a like i mentioned earlier could really just be having the confidence to actually Walk out the front door and to the corner shop to do something, yes. and if that is your challenge, you know that is your Everest. You know that is the for me Everest significance. For you, the significance of to to go to that corner shop and buy some milk, um, walking on your prosthetic legs or or you know using your wheelchair, whatever the situation might be, that is your Everest. And everyone's Everest is different, mm. and and that's the one thing I really want to point out. You know we all really face different challenges on a daily basis in our life in, in very many ways and forms. And, and they are as significant as, you know, like I say, the big expeditions. You know, Because for, for so majority of the people out there to try and go and climb Everest or attempt Everest, you know, it's, so, it's out of their reach. It's out mm-hmm. of their, you know, they don't even think of they, they, they do see a, a very small group of people on, on a different pedestal to go and try and do that. But that's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to put ourselves on a different pedestal. It's just that every day we're going to face challenges and your challenges a, is as significant as mm. Everest. And whatever that is, you need to do, you know, you need to know that you can do it. And I think, I think I, I really love Everest. Yes, you know, the disappointment of not getting there um, to the top has actually, I've learned more from that mm. than actually probably what i would have if we did make to the top because i really had to look back on myself going because i mentioned earlier i said oh we're going back facing our friends and family saying that we failed you know have we really failed let's (laughs) look at this you know have we really failed no we didn't make it to the top you know that's a given but alex you asked me earlier on about that you know being in my hospital bed and in that two months would I have ever considered you know (laughs) would I if I ever seen myself doing this stuff no and that is why Everest wasn't a failure because if you come if you take from where I came from barely being able to walk to you know considering or wishing I was dead and rather not alive to attempt Everest yeah. <laughs> that in itself the pure fact that we tried something so unbelievably out there that in itself is success that in itself is you know you know, we, we won because we've put ourselves out there and, and I think it's also important the point that I want to make is that we're not going to succeed in everything in our daily lives like I said to you, I've lost so many races, I've lost mm. Um, you know in bike riding i have made so many mistakes along the way i have again failed with other expeditions and other attempts on unbelievable things um but it's through those failures that i actually learn a lot more about myself Mm. that then sets me up to then become successful in other parts of my life and i think as people see that and they can use those gosh we keep calling them failures but maybe just not succeeding Mm. then as a better way of, or as a tool to then succeed in something else, then that's a great way to to look at life.
0: Yeah, absolutely mind blowing. This, I mean, ad, ad, an, an outrageous mindset, which I think is just you know, is just. So, I, I could see Scotty there. One of the things we're
2: doing here, Jacko, is a uh, rapid fire questions for a minute. Okay. So oh, that
0: the gosh,
1: listeners,
2: this is, this is more important than Everest.
1: I think so, yeah. <laughs> more, more, more nerve-wracking than
2: Everest. <laughs> <laughs> the questions aren't that bad. And, you know, the toughest one I'm probably going to say is, what's your name? And you'll probably get that <laughs> one right because you're a part. And you're right with Crayons. But other than that, <laughs> we'll give it a go. If Alex, can you give me a minute on the OE clock there for yes, Jack? So three, two, one. Okay, then. Texting or talking? Texting. Texting. Favourite day of the week? Friday. Briefs or boxers? Boxers. Last song you downloaded?
1: Oh, it's an Afrikaans song, you wouldn't know. It's, it's... Afrikaans song get (laughs) Your favourite (laughs) holiday? Anywhere around the world where it's warm, but most where likely, uh, Mallorca.
2: Mallorca. How long does it take you to get ready? Oh, I'm, uh, about <laughs> twenty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Twenty minutes. Yeah, yeah. I'm just twenty minutes.
1: Yeah, Fif- oh, fifteen shit. minutes of the twenty minutes is in the shower, and then I literally like rapid fire through the rest. Of it, so. <laughs> right,
2: visibility. Or super strength. Oh, super strength! And if I can finish this one, I'll test you because um, Paralympian, name the colours of the five interchanging rings on the Olympics. Oh
1: wow! Obviously, it's red, blue, green, yellow, black.
2: Oh, he's only one <laughs> nailed it
1: yes <laughs> oh i had to think of that one oh, yeah. oh.
2: that
1: wasn't that hard was it yeah. <laughs> no it's good good yeah. questions good questions,
0: good um, questions. And my questions is coming up now um, it's just more about your time in the military jacko if you could just go and tell me um, or tell the listeners your favourite moment in the military
1: wow military favorite moment in the military that 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 is a very hard question because i i have so many that stands out and stuff like that um i would say especially i would i would say the day i become a paratrooper so that that pass of parade and stuff like that and then um oh then there's many to follow that on operations and, and you know tours and stuff like that but i would say especially that moment when you 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 know you slide because um, we have a green backing. So there's a point during basic training where you get your maroon beret and you get uh, your cap badge. But we put like a green backing behind the cap badge, which indicates that you're still uh, in training. You know, you're, yeah. you're not a qualified paratrooper yet. Um, and then that moment, you take that green backing out and the staff, you know, the captain... Uh, hand you your, your your maroon beret and you put it on you know that that's truly a significant moment so so yeah you, you know you've joined a very elite unit so so yeah that that's most likely the one that stands
0: out that's answered a good few questions actually so I have to go and move on a little bit to what is your next adventure then because I mean you've done so much already you I mean you're part of the team GB cycling team am i right in saying that yeah 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 so, so that is the next adventure so
1: obviously um I was I was I'm um, very, I was very inspired by, by London I, at, at the London Paralympics and Olympics that we hosted in 2012 and I lived in London at the time and then having the opportunity to go and watch some of the the the, the events and stuff and just seeing that interaction between the crowd and seeing the, the very, very high level of performance uh, of the athletes, especially on the Paralympic side you know, with so many disabilities and um, you know, Again, there where people just go, you know what, this will not define me. Yeah. Um and they just cracked on with you know with sports that you just think, you know, someone without two arms can't do, and they just go, Well, I so I can do it. And anyway, that's where my that's where kind of my dream of becoming a Paralympian started. Mm. And obviously I've tried over the last eight years. I've I've had a bit towards Rio, uh, where obviously we've been cycling. Sadly, didn't make it to the, you know, the final team that, that went on to the Paralympic Games in Rio in 16. I took a bit of a break from British cycling um, and kind of started training myself. And again, went on a few other expeditions and challenges and stuff just to mix it up a bit. But the one thing I never stopped was I never stopped cycling. And yeah. I figured out ways during the last four years of what works for me mm-hmm. um, and basically, to cut a very long story short is I got really good um results over the last couple of years. And the back end of last year, sorry, the back end of I need to think where we are now because obviously this is a postponement. So so basically January twenty twenty, yeah. Um I, I got great results, and they said that you know, British Cycling I always had a good relationship with them, and they, you know, they said, "Well, you know what, Jackie, your chances of actually getting to Rio, uh, sorry to Tokyo, is, is very good." So at this stage, you know, I was an independent rider; I was looking after myself, I was funding it myself, you know, my own bikes and equipment, blah 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 blah, nutrition, coaching, um, and I looked. Well, if that is the case, how can I take some of the pressures off me that is because I obviously had to find work and sponsorship and all that kind of stuff to help me support my my hobby at that stage so stepping back onto the team was a sensible thing to do and I thought you know what it is only for eight months at that stage because it was going to be January get Mm. back on the team and then the the Paralympics in August so Mm. um, that's all I want to do become a Paralympian and go you know go win a medal and 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 then move on with my life obviously that's now been extended a slightly longer due to the the postponement of the games, um, and, but I love it, you know, I'm still on the team, uh, uh, I'm, I'm training harder than ever before, I'm focused more than ever before, mm. the postponement have given us time to look into smaller aspects of my training and where mm. we can improve, we know what works, we, work, we know what doesn't work, so my next challenge to answer your question is, yeah, it's the Paralympic Games in August this year, if it goes ahead.
0: I'm, I'm hoping i'm sure it will go ahead i'm hopefully <laughs>
1: i'm sure but, it will. i'm confident it will you know there's a lot going on behind the scenes and you know there's a lot of other sports that is behind closed doors and mm. they see it work and i think rigorous testing and and forming strict bubbles i think i can see us going there and maybe just without crowds and it will be again it will be a different experience than mm. what we ever exper- you know thought it might be but again, it will be a unique experience, you know the first time ever, maybe without crowds or stuff like that. but again, maybe the most viewed ever, because if all those yeah. people are going to watch on television, you know then yeah. then it might be even the most viewed ever before, so
0: yeah, yeah. Well, that would just be absolutely incredible that would, that would be incredible as um as a family charity as well, we ask our all our guests to come on this. um We just want to know um what does family mean to you? Oh, family is
1: such an important thing. I mean, um, I'm very fortunate to have someone like like my fiancé, like Catherine, in my life. We haven't got kids or anything like that yet, but um, you know, just someone to to bounce ideas off, to to share feelings, to share emotions. You know, because you know, I do take on a lot in my life, and it's not it's not always easy or straightforward going and to have that support there is you know it's phenomenal and then again similar with my sister you know having gone through you know so much of my life especially the backing of you know from from injury onwards you know again just those support pillars is so important and then you know your, your 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 closer family your mom and dad and stuff like that as well you know just it's it's unbelievable how how the one thing i found out from the injuries just obviously that ripple effect it has uh, throughout and and then over the years how you know that really could be used as a, as, a, as a new way to connect and 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 to to really utilize each other as family
0: yeah that was just in, yeah that's incredible that's a great answer as well probably one of the best answers we've had so far <laughs> <laughs> there you go absolutely.
2: i think that i think today's um, podcast has been absolutely fantastic the um as i said you're uh, Inspiration to a lot of people, um, and I think you will continue to help a lot of people along the way. So, on that there, Jacko, how can people get in touch with um, Jacko Van gas if they want to get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course, always open to that. Um, obviously, we're we're on most of the uh, social uh, media platforms, so Instagram, Facebook, um, and Twitter. So again, just at Jacko Van Gaas. Uh, pretty easy to remember and obviously facebook is just purely uh i've got two pages i've got a personal and and an athlete page there so jacob and gas athlete or jacob and gas and then i've got my own website as well that people can go and visit uh to keep up with date with some of the things i'm doing um some of the things i have done before there's a few blogs on there there's a few just general information about myself Um, so so yes and that's jacobandgas.com so, so yeah, very happy to, to connect with people in whichever
2: sense they feel more comfortable with. Absolutely, and I, and we wish you all the very best for the uh, Paralympics, mate. And we will all be here. And give us time. We'll all be rooting for you, and we'll all be shouting for you. And if there's no no crowds there, you'll still probably hear me. <laughs> um, <laughs> roaring that's in the background. One. Yeah, that's a given. Oh, well, amazing, amazing podcast.
0: fantastic yeah jacko thank you so much for going and joining us today this has been one of the most inspirational podcasts we've done um make sure everyone to um, subscribe and follow uh jacko because i think he's uh, a truly inspirational guy and i think everyone can learn a lot from his story make sure to follow us on spotify as well so you don't miss out on our next episode where we'll be interviewing (laughs) my special forces soldier and television presenter ken haymes Um, so make sure to like follow and subscribe and thank you all very much for listening all right thank thank you